Well, good morning and welcome to Christmas at South Point. I think the place looks lovely, but I may be biased because I was here yesterday when this was getting put together. But uh, thanks to everybody that helped contribute to that and for all of you who serve the Lord in various ways. As we come into the Christmas season, I thought it would be profitable for us to talk about the birth of Christ because that's the core of what Christmas is, and I think it's also the first thing that gets lost when Christmas rolls around. There's a lot that people associate with Christmas. It seems to start in our country somewhere after the 4th of July. We begin to get the Christmas decorations ready and the stores start gearing up and we're skipping over everything in between because it's such a profitable time for everybody that uh, is in business, but I think it's very important that we not lose sight of what the true relevance of Christmas is. So I thought for the next four weeks it would be uh, valuable for us to really examine why the birth of Jesus is still relevant, why this needs to be at the forefront of our Christmas. If we call ourselves followers of Christ, then we need to do that, and we need to understand what his birth was about. And so we're going to do that, and this week we're going to start with the first reason uh, in, our, in our series, Navidad, Why Jesus' Birth Still Matters. We're going to talk about light. Light's a very important part of Christmas, don't you think? I mean, we light our trees. We light our homes. I'm amazed sometimes by the light displays that I see you know, people put up around their homes all the time and the energy and the money that goes into it. I mean, I think you could see it from the stars sometimes. We, we put a lot of focus on light, but I don't know that we really understand the real relevance of what the light of Christmas is. Today we're going to examine that, so I'm going to invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 9. I promise, I promise we're going to the New Testament soon. But one more week in the Old Testament, we're going to take a look at an old prophet who lived a long time ago at a difficult time in history. Isaiah lived 800 years approximately before Jesus entered the world. He was stationed in the southern part of Israel in an area known as Judah, but it was a time of great turmoil. His own people and the northern tribes of Israel, which were at this time a separate nation, were being plunged into wickedness. And wickedness always brings darkness, a spiritual darkness, a moral darkness. It leads to political darkness. And darkness is a very dangerous thing. Not long ago, uh, I needed something out of the east room of the gymnasium. I don't know how many of you have ever been in that particular room. I know some of you have. And so it was really one of my first times of venturing in there. So I walked in through the side door here and opened the door, swung it open, and suddenly started walking in to get what I was looking for when I heard the slam of the door behind me and I was suddenly plunged in darkness. I didn't realize that the window was sort of blacked out, and that room gets real dark real fast once that door shuts. And then I was in a real pickle because I was about halfway into the room, and I suddenly realized I don't know where the light switch is. 
And I knew that that room was filled with a lot of real dangerous stuff, tables with all kinds of very dangerous equipment on it. And, and I just began to think to myself, this isn't good. I, I don't have any light. I'm in, a, in the middle of a dangerous place. What am I going to do? And then suddenly I remembered that I did have light. Right here in my trusty pocket, I had my cell phone. And my cell phone has its own source of light. So I pulled it out and scrolled through and figured it out and hit the button and ta-da, I had light. And then I got to the big light and I turned it on and everything was great. And I learned an important lesson. You never know when darkness is going to fall. You need to be ready with the light. And I think that's very important in how we live our everyday lives. Isaiah lived at a time when there was great darkness and a great need for light. There was a nation. It was known as Assyria. And it was starting to come to power on the world stage. And a lot of the nations that surrounded it saw the threat and decided that they were going to try to stop it. In particular, their closest neighbors, the Arameans who we've talked about in weeks past, and Israel itself. So they formed a union to try to fight off this growing threat. They even tried to force Judah into joining with them. And it was a real, real dark time and the reason Assyria was rising to power was because God had ordained it he had set it into motion that he was going to use the Assyrians to discipline his people for their years and years of wickedness and all of the darkness that was there but God never does anything without first letting us know what's going to happen and so he sent prophets he sent prophets to the north and he sent prophets to the south because Judah was sort of heading in Israel's direction, and God wanted them to know that if you go their direction, what's going to fall on them will eventually fall on you. Isaiah was one of the prophets that God had sent. He was a contemporary of Amos and Hosea, who had been sent to the north. And as a matter of fact, they were the two final prophets that the nation of Israel would have before they'd be conquered. And then he was joined in the south by another prophet that may be familiar to you, a guy named Micah. And Isaiah ministered to several kings during his life, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, he heavily influenced. Hezekiah, if you know anything about Old Testament history, was a really godly king. And a lot of that was the direct result of Isaiah's influence. And so because Isaiah was being so effective in the south, those tribes were protected during the time that Assyria marched down and conquered Israel. God was using Isaiah to sort of preserve Judah. But Israel wasn't as fortunate. They fell to the Assyrians. And, and when I say fell, they were slaughtered by the Assyrians and really never returned. Those that did survive were carried off into captivity into various parts of the world, which was sort of the first dispersion of the northern tribes. Maybe you've heard the phrase, the lost tribes of Israel. This is when that happened as a part of God's discipline and judgment. But the great thing about our God is that even when he has to discipline us for our wickedness and our foolishness, he takes no pleasure in it. And he always does so with the goal of bringing us back, of restoring us, to pulling us out of the darkness that, that John once wrote, we love because our actions are evil. He won't leave us there. He tries to pull us out. And so as Isaiah is making proclamation in his, in his writings, 
he's talking about what's going to happen to Israel and what has happened to Israel. And then he's warning Judah that the same thing's going to happen to you if you don't turn away from your sin. But then there's sort of a break in all of this fearful condemnation in which God uses him to then pour out hope, which is what we desperately need when we're in darkness. So turn to Isaiah 9. If you haven't already, we're going to start in verse 1. Isaiah says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. When it uses the metaphor her in this verse, it's referring to a couple of tribal lands that were at the very top of Israel. And thus, they were the closest to when the Assyrians marched down from where they were further north. They immediately crushed Israel's ally, Aram, and then moved in. And the first place that they attacked were these two ancient Israeli tribal lands, Zebulun and Naphtali. And they were so angry at the Israelis for conspiring with Aram against them and with sending their military to fight them that they decided to make an example. They were sending a message to the rest of the world. We are here for conquest and anyone that steps in our way will be destroyed. And so those two tribal lands at the northern part of Israel suffered the brunt of their rage. I mean, it was scorched earth when the Assyrians moved through there. They were led by a king named Tiglath-Pileser III, and he carried off with him everybody that survived into slavery. And then they were forcefully repopulated by citizens of other conquered nations in order to make them easy to control. And yet we're told that even though God allowed his own people and the land that he had given them to be so corrupted and destroyed and occupied by outsiders, non-Jews, we're told that a day would come when he would make glorious this place that he refers to as Galilee of the nations. You know, it's interesting. is After the Assyrians conquered the northern tribes of Israel, that district, that region that was once known as Israel was renamed, especially that which was by the, the, the lake area there. The Jews in the south begin to refer to it simply as Galil HaGoyim. In Hebrew, that means the district of the Gentiles. Later on, that name would get shortened just to Galil Lee. And that became for what we know today as Galilee. What it really meant in Hebrew was the district. And it was really thought of derisively. Even during the time of Christ, God-fearing Jews in, in Judah, the southern part, looked at people who lived in the north, even other Jews, as being less than because they were in the district. This is where the non-Jews, the uncircumcised, the outsiders, the dogs, that's where they were. And yet we're told that this place that was despised by the southern Jews would one day be raised to become glorious. Don't you think it's interesting that this forgotten little nowhere of a place that was despised today is still known? 
that you can still to this day say the name Galilee and even outsiders know where you're talking about? People make pilgrimages from all over the world to go to this forgotten place? Why? Because of one man who God sent here. We're told that Jesus, even though he was Judean by birth, he grew up and lived in the district. The bad side of town, if you will. God sent him to Nazareth, a place that even had a bad reputation even in the district. That's why one of his own disciples, when he hears that he's from Nazareth, says about Christ, can anything good come out of that place? And yet God makes it glorious because he was restored and, and he talks about it 800 years before Jesus shows up he talks about how he's going to make this place glorious and not just this place but a couple of other places too he talks about the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan to get it real quickly for you here historically speaking there were more than just one area here there were the tribal lands of Israel but there were a couple of other places there was a place called the way of the sea which was Essentially an ancient travel route. It started somewhere near what would have been ancient Phoenicia, and it ran all the way down the coast of what today is Israel into Egypt. It was a caravan route. It was where traders would go up and down. But it sort of started in Phoenicia, and we're told that this place was also going to be made glorious. And then another place, the land beyond the Jordan, or the Transjordan, which was the area sort of east of the Sea of Galilee, east of the Jordan River, why are these places important? Because during Jesus' public ministry, he didn't just go in Galilee. He also went to other places. Now, one of them, of course, was the south in Judea because that's where he wound up getting crucified. But he also, we're told, went north into an area called Tyre and Sidon. Remember, that's where he healed the woman who had a daughter who was demon-possessed and he had that fascinating dialogue about it's not right to give you know the children's food to the dogs that was in Tyre and Sidon Tyre and Sidon were the capital cities of Phoenicia the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians and then later the Greeks crushed Phoenicia there wasn't much left by the time of Christ and yet today we know about it because that's a place where Jesus went to visit what about the Transjordan did he ever go there absolutely Absolutely. He went into an area known as Perea after John the Baptist was arrested. That was on the other side of the Jordan where John had his public ministry. So we're told that Jesus went all throughout the area and it was going to become glorious because of that, which means that even in the places that we would think of as being God-forsaken, filled with darkness, hopeless, God wants to send light. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. We're told that Jesus is in fact the light of the world. And the only hope for the darkness that they lived in, and frankly, that we live in. One of the best things about Christmas is the theme of light. You and I are told that not only is Christ the light of the world, but we are as well. We take his light and shine it through us and in such a way bring hope to a dark world. 
Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now keep in mind, when did Isaiah write this? At a time when the area that he's describing had been devastated by war and was desolate and now was being corrupted with people who didn't believe in God, who had all kinds of pagan religion. They would eventually intermarry with the Jews and form the new nation of Samaria. And we're told that this place that no God-fearing Jew wanted any part of now. They, they wanted no part of the district. And yet we're told that there's going to be a time when their joy is going to be multiplied. When's it going to happen? Well, we're given hints right here. First of all, we're told it's going to happen at harvest. And second of all, we're told it's going to happen when the spoil is divided. What is that talking about? Okay, well, let's take a look at the metaphor itself. Harvest has to do with agriculture. When do farmers harvest? At the beginning of the season or at the end? At the end, right? First, you got to plant the seed. Then you got to water it. You got to tend it. You got to get rid of the weeds. You got to protect it from the bugs. You got to have the weather just right. There's a lot of hard work that goes into Getting to the point of harvest. Let's take a look at the second metaphor. Spoil has to do with warfare. It has to do with a battle. When do warriors divide spoil? At the beginning of a battle? Nope. At the end, right? After a long, hard battle has been fought, that's when you get to divide the spoil because to the victor go the spoils. So what is this saying in context to Isaiah's prophecy here? What he's saying is there's going to come a long season, a long battle, and at the end of it, there's going to be a harvest and the spoils are going to be divided. What he's saying is, is that in time, something's going to happen to this land that's going to bring something that is greatly needed, a harvest and spoils. It's the idea of reaping the benefit of hard work and hard-fought battle. I think this is a sort of a precursor of what Jesus was going to do. Jesus used agrarian examples a lot in his teaching. He talked about planting seed. And certainly, the idea of battle was familiar. I think what it's saying here is that when Jesus comes, there's going to be a long season in which he's going to do a lot of hard work, where he's going to plant a lot of seed, where he's going to tend the crop of God, and then one day he's going to reap a harvest from it. He's also going to be in the middle of a great battle, and at the end of that battle, he's going to be the victor, and he's going to claim the spoils from it. It's the idea that there's hope coming in the personification of a light that's going to be revealed to this area. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Okay, who's the his being spoken of here? In context, we're told in verse 3 that it's talking about the nation of Israel. It's describing the nation of Israel in, modern, in, in ancient terms here. What had happened to Israel? They had been destroyed. They had been enslaved they were left a, a, rear, a mere a remnant of what they had been. And we're told that now there's going to be a change coming. We're told that the yoke of his burden, speaking of Israel, a yoke, most of you know, is a device. It's a wooden device that's used to sort of pair up a, a, 
draft animals, animals that you would use to pull a plow. And they would use a, a yoke to keep them together. And we're told that that's the condition of Israel right now. They're like plow animals. They're yoked together and they're having to do the bidding of Assyria. But there's going to come a day when they're not going to be yoked like that anymore. Russell told the staff of his shoulders. This was a part of the yoke. It was a metal brace that went across the top and the side to keep those animals that were yoked locked together. You want to know something really interesting? That for those who were really poor, if you didn't have draft animals, they often used slaves. They would put people inside of these yokes and make them pull the plow. You know, when I was in China one time, I, I came across a family, and there was a son, this a very smart kid who was trying to get into university, he got straight A's all through school, because it's the only way you can get in when you're poor. And I remember the day we showed up. It was one of the most heartbreaking things ever. This kid, 17 years old, his father behind him, guiding the plow, and the kid was wearing the harness to pull it because it was the only way to plow the field because their mother had cancer and they had to sell their ox in order to pay for her chemotherapy. That's the image of Israel. They're locked into a yoke. They can't get free. They're under a heavy burden, but there's somebody coming who's going to break that. And then lastly, we're told about the rod of his oppressor. In Hebrew, the word rod could easily be translated as scepter. In other words, this is them being dominated by someone. They don't have a say in their own government. They're slaves. And we're told that you, speaking of the Lord, you are going to break all of those things and set them free. Your people are under bondage right now, but that's not going to last. There's going to come a day when you're going to break those bonds and break the scepter of those who rule over them and set them free. Just like the day of Midian, if you know the Old Testament, Midian was a nation that had come out for war against Israel, and Israel had no chance of defeating them. And then an unlikely hero named Gideon Took, wound up 300 men and they crushed the army of Midian because of God's power. And we're told that just as unlikely as that defeat of the Midianites was, there's going to come a day when a single source of light is going to show up in this God-forsaken place, the district, and start setting people free. Verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Just real quickly, the Assyrians were masters at intimidation. They knew that war wasn't just physical, it was mental, too. And they used to have these special sandals that they would wear that were basically covered all of their feet and their ankles in leather for protection. And they had a very familiar march cadence. They would stomp their feet as they marched. And there were millions of them. They came like locusts, and each of them thudding their feet. It's said that historically it was thump. Thump, thump, thump. And you could hear them coming when you were a city preparing for the siege that it would strike terror in your heart. They also had another tactic too. They would take the clothing of every monarch and every important general that they had killed, mostly blood-stained because of battle, and they would put them up on poles and carry them as banners to the next city so that they would be terrified of, you know that king you used to know that you thought was so strong? Here's his crown. Here's his robe. Remember those generals that struck terror into everybody? Here's their garments covered in blood. It was an intimidation tactic. And we're told 
that one day those boots, those garments are going to be burned in the fire by this light that's coming. So who is it? Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who's the light? Who's the one that's going to break the bonds, the yoke, the bar, the scepter? Who's the one that's going to take the military boots and the bloody garments and burn them? Here's the great part. A baby. A baby is going to do it. A child is going to be born to us. That's just another way of speaking about the people of Israel and also about humanity in general. Someone is going to come from us to do all these things and to set us free. We're told that the government is going to be on his shoulders. Why? Because the Jews knew the history. They knew that God had promised that one day an offspring of David. Now you've got to understand at the time of Christ the monarchy of David had been gone for centuries. But everybody was waiting for that one child the descendant of David, who would come and do all of the things that had been promised in 2 Samuel 7. And there was a child coming who was going to be raised up in the district and yet be from the lineage of David who was going to break every bond, put away war, and deliver light. And his name shall be called, and now we're given four throne names for this child king. One, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. What that means is that he will keep his own counsel. He won't need anybody to advise him. The word wonderful actually translates in Hebrew. It means awe-inspiring or brilliant. In other words, this child king is going to be brilliant. He's also going to be mighty God, so we don't have any doubt about him just being human. We also know that he is, in fact, both the son of man and the son of God. It's interesting, the word mighty in Hebrew is gibor. It doesn't just mean powerful and mighty. To the Hebrews, it also meant heroic. This child king, when he comes, is going to serve in a heroic role of setting the people free and providing them with the leadership they need and the light out of the darkness. And then finally, or excuse me, next he's called the everlasting father. We get confused about that because we're like, well, wait a minute, Jesus is the Son of God and the Heavenly Father is a different aspect of the, of the personhood of God. Think about it this way. What it really means, that what, what the phrase actually could be translated is the Father of Eternity, which is another way of saying that this child king was going to be the author and the overseer of time itself, which is exactly what it says in Colossians, that even time is a part of his creation. And then lastly... The Prince of Peace, in Hebrew, Shalom. When this child comes, we're finally going to get the rest that we need. We're finally going to get the deliverance that we need. We're finally going to get the freedom that we need. The darkness is going to be lifted by the brilliance of his light, and everything that we cry out for is going to happen. Now that sounds really good until you leave here and you walk back out into a dark world. And then you got to face it and say to yourself, okay, Jesus, we've got the lights on the tree. We've got the lights on the house, but where are you? Are you coming back? Yeah, 
just as sure as he came the first time, he's coming back. What does God's light bring for us in the time we have left? First of all, it brings, we're told, release. You know, one of the worst things about darkness is that it always brings slavery. Slavery to fear, slavery to immorality, slavery to oppression, all kinds of slavery. You know, there's parts of town that you don't want to be in after dark, huh? There's places you don't want to get caught in. Darkness brings out the worst in people. The crime rate goes up after dark. We're all afraid of the dark, not just our kids. Things always get worse when it's dark. God's light brings release. Release from our fear. Release from our own self-desire for wickedness. We need God to free us because we are, whether we believe it or not, in bondage. Without Christ, we're in bondage. Psalm 102, starting at verse 19, says... That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die. It's amazing how many times Jesus set people free. People that were demon-possessed, he set them free. People that were held bondage by illness, sickness, he set them free. People that were caught up in wickedness, like Matthew, were set free. Release is a part of light. Also rest. We're told that every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be burned. This is peace. Live in scary times. Sometimes it's hard to sleep with all of the turmoil, all of the chaos, all of the things that are fearful to us. And the darkness just seems to grow and to envelop not just our country, but our own personal lives. There's darkness in your family. There's darkness with your friends. There's darkness at work, darkness at school, darkness in church. We need light. We need peace. We need to be set free, and we need to be given rest. Psalm 62.5, For God alone, O my soul, Wait in silence, for my hope is from him. And then lastly, a reign. We need leaders, real leaders. I think it's been so long since we've had real leadership in this country that we have forgotten what it looks like. And frankly, it's been a long time since we've had real leadership in church too. We've got a lot of people that like to be on stage. We've got a lot of people that like to have power. But we don't have a lot of people that like to serve and bring the light and set the example. But we sure need it. Jesus is the greatest leader that this world has ever seen. And he had no title, no formal authority. And yet he changed the world. Verse 6 said, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. I tell you what. I am ready for him to come back and take charge. I am ready for him to come back and to start fixing what is broken. Oh, how desperately we need that. And every Christmas when we celebrate the birth of that child, we are waiting for that day.
Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, when, I, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. I hope you long for that day. I hope when you celebrate Christ and give gifts and do all of your Christian traditions and Christmas celebrations that you are remembering the child who's at the core of it. And that you are celebrating both what he did and what he will do and longing for his return. The light of Christ's love shines even in the darkest night. I heard a great story. It's from 2008. Back uh, at the time we were having a presidential race and one of the candidates was uh, Senator John McCain, the late Senator McCain. And he was interviewed during his campaign by Time Magazine. And people knew that McCain was a, a Christian man, a spiritual man. And so they wanted to ask him about it, you know, and the role of his own personal faith in politics and, and in his life and dealing with some of the moral quandaries that he had to deal with. And he told a fascinating story about something that was at the core of his faith practice. He said it happened back when he was in Vietnam. Those of you who know McCain's story know that he, he served in the army during the Vietnam War, and he was taken captive by the North Vietnamese and hauled off to their capital city, Hanoi, and held in prison and horribly mistreated. And while he was interviewed, he said this, when I was a POW in Hanoi, my captors would tie my arms behind my back and then loop the rope around my neck and ankles so that my head was pulled down between my knees. I was often left like that throughout the night. But one night, a guard came into my cell. He put his finger to his lips, signaling for me to be quiet. And then he mercifully loosened my ropes to relieve my pain. The next morning, when his shift was about to end, the guard returned and retightened the ropes, and he never said a word to me. A month or so later, on Christmas Day, I was standing in the dirt courtyard when I saw that same guard approached me. He walked up and stood silently, not looking or smiling at me. Then he took his sandaled foot and he drew a very crude cross in the dirt in front of us. We stood wordlessly together looking at that cross, remembering the true light of Christmas, even in the darkness of a Vietnamese prison camp. Amazing what just a little bit of light in a dark place, a little bit of mercy, a little bit of kindness, a little bit of Christ's love can do, even between enemies. Dear ones, we have a great opportunity at Christmas to let the light shine to a world that is dark and is groping around and consuming itself and doesn't even realize what danger they're in any more than the tribe of Israel did. It's our job to be like Isaiah, to both warn them, but to love them, and to be hopeful for them, that they could find the release and the rest and surrender to the reign of Christ. Father, thank you for your word, which is truth. Speak it into our hearts, especially at Christmas, Lord. May we take time to reflect on what great love it took 
to send a child into such a place as this, filled with darkness, that the light would shine, that the prisoner would be set free, that the war would end, and that hope would reign. May we celebrate him now and throughout the year. In Jesus' name, amen.